We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 342 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Lunar Orbit and Landing. On the morning of the fourth day, 70 hours into the mission, Capcom called up to the astronauts. Good morning, Dave. It's time to rise and shine. There was expectancy in the voice at Houston and excitement out in space. The moon was ahead. This was the day when Apollo 15 would pass beyond the western leading limb of the moon, the leading edge to its far side. But before that happened, another important task had to be accomplished. The SIM bay door on the service module needed to be jettisoned in order to expose the cameras, sensors, and experiments to the lunar environment. The door was a hunk of metal five feet wide and more than nine feet long, and they were going to release it with explosives. It was decided to jettison the door before they entered lunar orbit in case it hit the large engine bell at the rear of the spacecraft. This operation was a first for the Apollo program, which is why, as a precaution, the crew would first don their spacesuits. It turned out to be much easier to put the spacesuits on in space. The astronauts simply let the suit drift in front of them and floated into it. Then the crew felt a faint shudder through the spacecraft as the explosives fired and the panel slowly tumbled away. The detonation jolted a thruster valve closed, but the crew quickly reopened it from the control panel. The bay of the prize experiments was now exposed to space, ready to whir into action when they reached lunar orbit. Next step, lunar orbit insertion. This is Apollo Control at 78 hours 10 minutes. The viewing room behind the mission operations control room is beginning to fill up now as we near the loss of signal. All of the flight directors uh, are beginning to assemble in the control room proper. The crew was silent as they coasted into the moon, preparing for the lunar orbit insertion burn that would slow them down enough to enter lunar orbit. As with the previous moon landing missions, their course would take them behind the moon, and when that happened, they would lose contact with the Earth. This is Apollo Control. We're five minutes away from loss of signal now. And Apollo 15 is 490, 484 nautical miles from the moon. Velocity 7,185 feet per second. As the astronauts neared loss of signal, Houston wished the crew well for the lunar orbit insertion burn. 15, this is Houston. Houston, 15, go. Gentlemen, everything looks uh, perfect down here, and uh, all we can say is have a good burn. 
Okay, thank you. We'll see you on the other side. Roger. For the first time, the crew was behind the moon and out of touch, totally on their own. Right on schedule, the SPS engine fired, slowing Apollo 15 down to about 3,500 miles per hour. When they came out of the burn, they were coasting in lunar orbit. As the astronauts were in the dark during the first part of the orbit, their only visual indication of the moon was the lack of stars in the vast area of space it occupied. Then came the reward. As they passed the Terminator, the dividing line between the portion of the lunar surface in darkness and that in light, all of a sudden, the spacecraft came from darkness and broke into sunlight. Even after the many months of studying the moon and learning all the technical features, the astronauts felt absolutely overwhelmed seeing the far side up close. It looked spectacular. Back on Earth, Mission Control began to anticipate acquisition of signal, indicating Apollo 15 had made it around the far side. We're three minutes away from a nominal acquisition time now. One minute to go. Ten seconds. AOS on the command and service module. We'll allow a little time now for antenna lockup before attempting to talk to the crew, but we did get acquisition of signal on time, indicating a good burn. At 78 hours, 56 minutes ground elapsed time, Apollo 15 emerged from behind the eastern limb of the moon to see Earth ahead of them. This, too, was a most beautiful sight. Looking back at Earth from lunar orbit for the first time was incredible. It really gave the astronauts a sense of how far they had traveled. Communication with Mission Control then resumed. 15, this is Houston. How do you read? Hello, Houston. The Endeavor is on station with cargo, and what a fantastic sight. Beautiful news. Romantic, isn't it? Oh, this is really profound, I'll tell you. It's fantastic. First words from Dave Scott in Lunar Orbit. Status report for you. Okay, we're ready to copy whenever you're ready to give it. Okay, I think our trusty pilot has a first for you on this one. Burn time was 6 plus 3, 8. Ignition was on time. The residuals were 0, 0, and 0. Delta VC, minus 4.8. The fuel, 33.25. The oxidizer, 33.3. That's a beautiful job up there. And it was a very smooth burn all the way, Carl. There was uh, not a ripple. Dave Scott's excited description was a diversion from the normally clipped and controlled transmissions that Mission Control expected of the astronauts. And it did irritate some of the ground personnel. But the spacecraft was performing flawlessly, and who could have failed to be awed by those incredible sights? As the spacecraft orbited, the change in lighting, depending on the viewing angle and the angle of the sun, lent the lunar surface a whole spectrum of color from gray through a golden brown, throwing its surface craters and lunar mountains into stark relief. It was spectacular. The crew had organized their schedule so that they would have time to sit and observe the landscape of the moon passing beneath them. All three astronauts took many photographs. Meanwhile, the Saturn V third stage that had trailed them all the way to the moon, now out of view, had slammed into the lunar surface and gouged out a fresh crater. The shock from the impact sent an earthquake-like ripple across the moon, picked up by seismometers left 
by the Apollo 12 and 14 crews. This meant Apollo 15's first surface experiment was complete, and it had literally changed the face of the moon. Compared with prior missions that orbited comfortably near the lunar equator, Apollo 15 was in a strange, complicated orbit. It took the astronauts much farther north into unseen territories, and the commander continued to report with both geological precision and wonder as the spacecraft skimmed over regions no human eye had ever seen this close. Scott was in his element. Why choose between being a spacecraft pilot or an observational scientist? From the first moments in orbit, Dave Scott showed that a good commander could do both. With no atmosphere to soften the lunar features, they looked disturbingly close and sharp. It was the same moon they knew from photos in training, but when it filled the windows, it looked strikingly different. Seeing a dark circle on a map was abstract, but skimming across that same 500-mile-wide basin in person was real. The variety was fascinating. Faults, swirls, wrinkles, powdery dustings, and features that looked weathered by earth-like oceans and dust storms. Rivers of ancient lava rippled across the barren plains. Worden reported with excitement on subtle surface flows, patterns, and variations in colors and shades. Worden radioed to Houston, saying, After the King's training, it's almost like I've been here before. The King was a nickname for his teacher, space scientist and geologist, Farouk Elbaz. The astronauts burned their engine once more, which dropped them into a lower orbit. Jim radioed, Man, it already looks like we're lower. As lunar features zipped by, the lowest point of their orbit was now less than 11 miles above the surface and coincided with passing over the planned landing site. Some of the mountains around that zone reached up 15,000 feet. Al stayed very aware of their altitude as the spacecraft slid around the moon, documenting the uncharted regions with photos and words. Capcom asked, Fifteen, does it look like you're going to clear the mountain range ahead? And Dave replied, Carl, we've got our eyes closed. We're pulling our feet up. Scott and Irwin would land on the moon the next day. Mission Control woke the crew early on day five, informing the astronauts that while they slept, their orbit had dropped faster than predicted. Denser parts of the moon, called mass cons, pulled harder on the spacecraft as it passed over them. Since they were flying over unexplored regions, the crew of Apollo 15 found mass cons the hard way by encountering them. Taking the shades off the windows, Al looked out with alarm as the spacecraft passed an immense lunar mountain. It looked like the peak was actually above them. Al could clearly see small boulders littering its side. Worden wondered, how low are we? He knew they were planning to land on the moon today, but not by hitting a mountain. Mission Control gave them the figures. Apollo 15 had dropped down under 46,000 feet. And fortunately, that was still three times higher than the mountains around the landing site. Al realized the spacecraft was tilted at an angle when he had looked out of the window, so the surface only appeared to be sloping above them. Mission Control calculated that Apollo 15 would drop even farther as the day went on, and their margin of error was getting too close to the top of those peaks. 
By the time they were over the landing site, Apollo 15 might be as low as 24,000 feet and falling. The crew was told to fire the thrusters, and that raised the orbit a little. However, that was an extra task in a day that was already packed. The next major task was now at hand. It was time to prepare to separate the lunar module from the command module. The actual separation was planned to occur on the far side of the moon, out of radio contact with mission control. Since there was always a risk of losing pressurization in one of the vehicles when they undock, all three astronauts were once again required to put on their spacesuits. After suiting up, the astronauts began the process of equalizing the pressure between Falcon, the lunar module, and Endeavor, the command module a necessary prerequisite before Scott and Irwin could transfer into Falcon. With this accomplished, Dave and Jim headed into Falcon to prepare for their lunar landing and were soon busy ensuring there was no broken glass in their spacesuit hoses. Then they proceeded to update the lunar module's guidance computer. Since the computers in both spacecraft were too primitive to talk to each other, the astronauts had to manually enter information so that the computers agreed on where they were and how fast they were orbiting. Dave raced ahead on the timeline, eager to get everything prepared, but it took hours and drew on some of their toughest engineering training. Finally, it was time to lock the hatches between the spacecraft. The astronauts were so engrossed in their work that there was never a moment to pause and say goodbye and good luck. Dave and Jim relied on Al to keep Endeavor, their only ride home, in lunar orbit for them, and Al had confidence Dave and Jim would survive their ambitious lunar surface explorations. So perhaps there was no need for good luck. Finally, they were ready to undock. Al hit the switch to separate the spacecraft, but nothing happened. The lunar module would not undock. This is Apollo Control. We're now about two minutes from reestablishing radio contact with Endeavour and Falcon. And when next we hear from the, uh, the two vehicles, they should be separated and moving apart at the rate of about one foot per second. Uh, about a second after separation, Al Worden was to uh, fire the thrusters on the command module for about three seconds to give him that uh, one foot per second separation uh, velocity. The flight dynamics officer reported that uh, we're seeing a consistent uh, downtrack error uh, of about 15,000 feet per revolution. Uh, this is uh, not unduly large and is the sort of error that will be taken out by targeting the uh, uh, power descent, the time of ignition, and also by updating the uh, state vector or the, the uh, LEM guidance system's knowledge of uh, the orbit that it is in. Uh, this sort of error can comfortably be removed prior to the beginning of the power descent. And we're coming up now on 30 seconds until reacquisition. Uh, the first order of business will be to confirm the uh, undocking and separation. And we've just had acquisition of signal. Endeavour Houston, standing by for a separate one. Okay, Houston, this is the Falcon. Uh, we didn't get a step, and Falcon uh, checking uh, the umbilical now the probe. Okay, uh we didn't read that except no sap. Uh, Dave Scott reporting we have not gotten separation. I said they were going to be checking the uh, probe umbilicals. We'll stand by for further reports. Okay, Houston Falcon, uh, we got no sap. And uh, Al's going back into the tunnel to check the umbilicals now. And uh, I guess we'll stand by for your recommendation. Okay, uh, Falcon, we copy. We'll have some words in a minute. There was uh, not even any motion on the probe. Roger, we copy. Uh, Falcon Houston, uh, we have no probe temp, which indicates the umbilical is probably not well connected. 
Okay, well, that's just what he's checking. Thank you. And 15 Houston, be advised that uh, we have plenty of time here on the SAP, uh, up to 40 minutes or so. Uh, the procedures will be to get vertical or get, uh, yeah, get vertical on the orb rate ball and standard SAP procedures. Houston reported that there was still a 40-minute window to separate, so there was no panic to correct the problem. The command module instruments suggested that an umbilical in the docking tunnel was not properly connected, halting the signal to operate the latches holding the two spacecraft together. Al hurriedly floated back up into the docking tunnel and opened Endeavor's hatch. He then realized that if the spacecraft separated now, he would die. He would be shot out like a cork from a bottle as the oxygen in the crew cabin emptied into space. Al found that the umbilical cord was loose in its socket. He plugged it back in, locked the hatch, and floated back to his couch. This endeavor, and um, I'm all set up again. The tunnel's in it, and pressure's good. Okay, very good. Give me a minute. Okay. That's Al Warden and uh, Dave Scott talking back and forth between Endeavor uh, and Falcon. Okay, Dave, about a minute and a half. Okay, a minute and a half until you get the attitude? Until uh, we're ready to set. Okay, good. Okay, let's go on one minute. Okay, you've got P-47 running. Uh, you can go anytime you want to. Okay, I've got P-47 running also. Ten seconds. Roger. Al hit the switch again and the two spacecraft gently slid apart. Okay, we're on the capture latches. Good. Right. Okay, and you're on your own. Okay, good clean step. Uh, you heard Al Warden and Dave Scott uh, report separation, and we confirm that on the ground. A good clean separation at uh, 100 hours, 39 minutes, 39 seconds. Al looked out of the window as they flew in formation. Falcon hung above him, its coppery sides glinting in the sunlight. The spidery spacecraft looked fragile out there in deep space. Al confirmed to Dave that their landing legs were fully deployed. Dave and Jim continued to busily check out their spacecraft for their descent to the surface, while Al prepared to burn Endeavor's engine again, to raise Endeavor into a 60-mile circular orbit and leave Falcon behind. Without Falcon attached, Endeavor was much lighter, and Al really felt the acceleration when the engine lit. He zoomed behind and above Falcon, leaving them to land. But Al's heart was in his throat. They had removed the center couch so Dave and Jim could easily float into Falcon, but Al had forgot to put it back. This meant that there was nothing to stop Al's seat on the left side from shifting on its supporting strut when the engine lit. His couch swung toward the middle of Endeavor, away from his instrument panel. And the scary part was Al could no longer reach the controls. All he could do was hold on and hope the computer was performing the burn correctly. If the burn ran too long, he could not shut it off. Fortunately, within a few seconds as the acceleration peaked, Al managed to swing the couch back and reach the instruments again. But it was a scary moment. Back on Falcon, Scott and Irwin fired the Falcon's powerful engine to enter a looping trajectory behind the moon to put them on course to land at Hadley Reel on the near side. So again, they would be temporarily out of radio communication with Mission Control. The ground could not monitor any problems Dave and Jim encountered during this final phase before their descent. And... In this particular case, that was okay with Dave Scott. While out of contact, there was an early indication that there might be a problem 
with Falcon's environmental control system. This meant that strictly according to mission rules, they might be forced to abort the landing. It was not a serious enough problem to endanger their lives, and it was Commander Dave Scott's call. As it turned out, Jim managed to fix the problem before their orbit brought them back to the near side. It appeared to have been a false indication that their cabin pressure was not secure, which might have meant they would have to begin descent and land in hard pressurized suits. It could be done, though it would make the landing very difficult and would make leaving the lunar module for surface activities even more difficult. But, out of earshot of Houston, Dave and Jim discussed it, and Dave made up his mind. Had the problem persisted, they would have bent the rules and gone for landing anyway. After a final systems check and trajectory certification, Houston gave a go for descent call at 104 hours 26 minutes ground elapsed time. Flight Director Glenn Lunny at this moment getting a final status for powered descent. Hey, vote for the final trim. And Falcon, you are go for PDI. Roger, go for PDI. The descent of Apollo 15 would be quite different from that of any previous Apollo mission. Not only was the spacecraft bigger and heavier because of all the extra equipment, but the landing site beyond the ridge of the Apennine Mountains meant that the spacecraft had to come in to land at a much steeper angle, twice that of previous missions. Rather than descend to a brief level off or step during final approach as other lunar landing crews had done, Scott was determined to come down in as smooth a linear sweep as possible. This would conserve fuel and give them more time to hover and be more selective in the touchdown point. But flying the lunar module during landing was rather like trying to run and turn corners on very slippery ice, which offers little friction to halt momentum. Maneuvering in space meant starting a movement long before a change in direction or speed was required. The lunar module was supported vertically by the power of its descent engine, which would maintain it in a hover unless tilted forward to allow some of the power to drive its forward motion. But since there was no air to slow the forward velocity by drag, slowing forward motion meant tilting the lunar module backward so that some of the power could be used as a brake. If the power was used either for braking or to drive the lunar module forward, however, this had to be compensated for by increasing power. Otherwise, the vehicle would lose altitude. The same applied when moving left or right. It was like a delicate ballet of forward-backward and left-right movements, coupled with handling the descent engine. Dave Scott prepared himself for the ultimate flying challenge of his career. Just the night before, he had told Jim Irwin, quote, I'm ready. I'm ready to put that baby in there right now. End quote. Ten seconds. Elich, go for the pro. Pro, going. Auto ignition. Riding the invisible flame of its descent engine, the lunar module Falcon, laden with scientific cargo, began its descent. First, the main engine will burn at 10% thrust for 26 seconds to give the computer a chance to sense the center of mass of the Falcon. It will then go to its high thrust setting. The LEM engine is uh, currently at uh, minimum thrust. They'll be throttling up shortly. Throttle up. The computer, which is running program 63, has just commanded the engine to its highest thrust setting. Lights are up. Looks stable. 
H-Tab's looking a little uh, higher than normal. Okay. A little higher than normal. Guidance officer says we've got good thrust, 99.20. Minute. H-Tab's about 20 high. H dot represents the Falcon's vertical speed. While the reporting was going on, Mission Control had measured their velocity by radio and discovered there was a landing site targeting error. They will now give the crew an offset value to enter into the computer. This will compensate for the error and trick the computer into landing in the right place. Falcon Houston. A 169 minus 02800. Roger, minus 2, minus 02800, standing by for the enter. Here, go for enter. The Falcon has two guidance systems. Pings is the main, and AGS is the backup, which is used only for an abort. The crew compare them to see if their state vectors, velocity, and position agree. Falcon Houston, you're going two minutes. All right, they're going two. Things and eggs compare. We're showing an altitude of about 46,000 feet now. About 2% low on fuel. Okay, and one. Three minutes before power descent began, the lunar module was yawed left to improve the angle of the high-gain antenna for communication. At three minutes into the burn, Scott will yaw it back to face-up attitude. Falcon Houston, we're happy with your fuel. Okay, it's nice to hear. Hey, three minutes showing to zero. Altitude's good. H dot's right on, Dave. Good. Still reading two percent. Oh, had Houston happy with us. Falcon Houston, you're go at three. Roger, go at three. Hey, three minutes showing to zero. Once Scott has valid altitude data from the landing radar, he displays the delta H which is the difference between the radar's value for height and the value currently being used by the computer. Altitude now about 42,000 feet, uh, our velocity down to about 3,900 feet per second. So 3,400 delta H. Velocity light is out, delta H looks good up here. Houston, what do you think? Falcon Houston, we agree with delta H, except. Mission Control also looked at the Delta H and confirmed with Scott that they are happy with the difference of 3,400 feet. The landing radar's data will now be gradually incorporated into the guidance equations. Eventually, the radar and the computer will converge on the same values for altitude and velocity. That's the landing radar data coming in, and uh, Scott just reported they're accepting that data. Irwin now checks the voltage on the ED bats. These are the batteries that power the explosive devices that would separate the stages in case of an abort. And Houston ED batteries check. Copy. The braking phase of the descent is progressing flawlessly, with the crew making regular checks of their progress. Four minutes. Altitude's 2,000 high. Okay, about three low. Two and oxidizer looking good. At one percent. Eight things and eggs look good. The primary guidance system thinks it's about three thousand feet lower than it is. The uh, radar should correct that. Four thirty. Altitude's four thousand high. H dot's right on. One oxidizer good. Okay. Delta H is two thousand. We're about five minutes into the uh, maneuver now, and Glenlani uh, taking a status, go all the way. Hi. Stop. About nine high. Okay. Uh, Houston, you're go at five, and your fuel quantity looks good here. Okay, understand. Go at five. 
Up to 3,000 high, H.10 high. Put on measure, good. Okay. We're still looking good. Velocity down now to 2,400 feet per second. According to their instruments, they are rapidly converging on the ideal trajectory. This is despite the fact that the engine is still in its high thrust setting and is not being actively adjusted yet. Glenn Lonnie making another status, says we look good. Hi. Okay, Lonnie, you guys are good. And the Delta H is looking pretty good. Falcon Houston, you're go at six. Roger, go at six. We're about three minutes now from the approach phase, altitude about 2,500 feet. 25,000 feet, correction. Sir. Altitude 1,000 high, 8, about, about 4 high. AX axis override drop. Mission Control now predicts that the computer will throttle the engine down from its high thrust setting at 7 minutes 23 seconds into the burn, which the crew confirms. The engine has now been placed in an adjustable range so the computer can ride its thrust to fly towards the ideal trajectory. Falcon Houston throttle down seven plus two three. Roger seven plus two three. Seven minutes. Thousand high. Six about just about on. Oxidizer run about one percent low. Coming up on throttle down in about three seconds. The guidance system will back off on the thrust to about uh, fifty percent, fifty-seven percent. And the crew confirmed throttle down, right on time. 30. Now Scott briefly checks that he can manually control Falcon's attitude. If there was a problem, he would have seen a warning flag. The spacecraft has two independent systems for measuring propellant quantity. Mission Control now selects the most conservative of the two systems, Descent 1. Oxidizer are good. Okay, check the manual. No flags, looks good. Falcon Houston, descent one. Roger, descent one, and looks like P64 923. Roger. P64 is the final approach phase where the lunar module pitches up for the astronauts' first good look at the landing site. Altitude now about 16,000 feet. Mission Control now calculates that Falcon's trajectory is too far to the left, or south. Scott will be able to correct for this during P-64. The Falcon is now flying below the summits of mountains to either side of them. Jim and Dave had not expected to see peaks above them to the left and right as their trajectory took them through this pass in the mountains. It made them feel almost as if they should pull up their feet to prevent scraping them along the top of the range. Falcon Houston, we expect you may be a little south of the site. Hey, coming up on 8,000 feet. Okay. During the earlier part of the descent, the lunar module was tilted backwards, windows facing up, so that the power of the descent engine would slow their velocity. But now, as their altitude dropped past 7,000 feet, Scott pitched Falcon forward by 30 degrees to take a look at where their trajectory was bringing them into land. Now Program 64 begins the approach phase of the descent. Although Scott could recognize the major features that lay below, no photograph had been detailed enough to prepare him for exactly what he would find in the landing area. The highest resolution photograph had been at a resolution of 60 feet. Craning to look through the triangular window for a glimpse of the land ahead, Scott saw no sign of Hadley Reel. There were a number of craters and formations which had not shown up in the photographs. He was pretty sure that if they carried on the same flight path, they would land long and to the south of the target area. Coming up on pitch over. Feet. Okay. Scott moves the Falcon to the right. Irwin calmly reads out angles. Scott uses them, 
to sight past lines painted on his window. This tells him the computer's aim point. Coming right. Four zero. Five thousand feet. Three nine. Three nine. Three eight. Three nine. Four thousand feet. Four zero. Four one. Four five. Four seven. Five two. Three thousand feet. Five two. Five two. Five one. Five zero. Four seven. Four seven. Two thousand feet. Four two. Okay, got a good squat. Good. Four two. Four three. Three hundred feet. Falcon Houston, you're going Four five. Badge, go for landing. Four four. Four five. Thousand feet. Four five. Nine hundred. Four five. Eight hundred. Four five. Seven hundred. Four six. Six hundred. Four eight. The computer now enters program 66, which gives Scott control of the Falcon's attitude. Also, by moving the rate of descent switch up or down, Scott can control how fast they descend in one foot per second increments. Scott gave himself a silent reminder, bring it down. Then, at 100 feet, a dust storm raged below him. The thrust from the descent engine had kicked up the very fine surface dust of the moon's outer crust into a dense gray cloud, totally obscuring the surface. It was like looking through a thick fog. From that point on, Scott flew on instruments, just as he had done many times in the simulator. He slowed Falcon to a near hover, and as Irwin read off the diminishing altitude, Scott waited for the contact light. It was imperative that as soon as the 10-foot-long probe sensors extending from the feet of the lunar module made contact with the ground to shut the engine down, otherwise the engine bell of the craft risked being seriously damaged on impact. If the engine casing split and damaged the vehicle, they might become permanent residents of the moon. Five hundred four nine minus seventeen minus fifteen four hundred and minus fourteen. Fp sixty six. Okay. Three hundred feet minus eleven minus eleven two hundred fifty minus eleven nine percent fuel. Two hundred minus eleven. 150 minus 7 minus 6 120 feet minus 6 Finally, the contact light lit and Dave pressed the engine stop button. The fog of dust dispersed almost instantly and the silvery spider-like craft came into rest with a firm thud that rattled every piece of gear in the cabin and brought an exclamation of surprise from Jim. Bam! Okay, I've got some dust. Minus five, 100 feet at five. 9% fuel. Minus five. 80 at five. Minus three. 60 at three. 50 at three. Cross pointers look good. 40 at three. Contact. 
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 342 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 15, Lunar Orbit and Landing. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on July 16th. Sorry I ran so long on this one. Uh, I will try to move things along now. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 170 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, I had a few afterthoughts on this episode. It kind of sounded like Al Worden had a wily coyote moment when he fired his engine after separation. You remember Wiley Coyote from the old Roadrunner cartoons? <laughs> well, I'm glad things worked out. I thought it was interesting. Dave and Jim had a little ECS problem on the back side of the moon on that last orbit. But they were going to land anyway. Now, I wonder how seriously bad it would have to be before they would actually abort a landing. I'm thinking it would have to be pretty desperate. I guess they both knew this was their once-in-a-lifetime chance to land on the moon, and neither wanted to give that up, and I don't blame them. And lastly, I want to thank Mr. Lewis from NASA Houston for the care package he sent me. First of all, it was inside a very sturdy wooden package decorated with the Apollo 15 logo and the NASA meatball sticker on the back. <laughs> there were several items in the package. The most impressive was the two vintage 1971 NASA fiberglass cafeteria trays with authentic cigarette burns. Could it have been... Kraft or Krantz who put the burns there. You know, there was a lot of smoking going on back then. The trays also had the aluminum patina on the back, a remnant of being slid along the line as food was retrieved. You know, at first I didn't know whether I should frame them or use them, but it turns out Mrs. SRH and I have been using them for all the meals <laughs> we enjoy in front of the TV set in the living room. Mr. Lewis also sent me an authentic stamp released during the Apollo 15 mission, and I love it. It is very historical and my first set of an Apollo stamp. Thank you very much, Mr. Lewis, for going to the trouble and expense to send that to us. We really do appreciate it. Okay, if you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For the past seven years, we have been completely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions. I would like to thank Ryan M. from Michigan, who donated at the Orion level. Magnus B. from Australia donated at the Salute Skylab level and earned a shooting star emoji. Matthew T. from Alaska donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Ryan B. donated at the Mercury level. Rasmus J. donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. C.J. Kendrick donated at the Sputnik level. 
Andres S. from the Czech Republic sent in another donation and is at the Soyuz level. And Derek F. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 249. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 356, with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Some of you have sent good wishes for our daughter, who is expecting our first granddaughter. So here's an update. We had a little scare last week, but she and baby are okay. Our daughter is about 32 weeks along in her pregnancy, and her first child came at 34 weeks. The doctors would very much like her to make it five more weeks, but uh, we shall see. Doctors said things could change quickly in a week, so we are keeping a close eye on her and baby. Thanks so much for asking and sending those good wishes. We really appreciate it. And now for the winner of our drawing. Remember, you will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Ian Baltutis. Ian, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 356 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth, and Apollo 15 Astronauts' Journey to the Moon by Al Worden, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Apollo 15 Flight Journal, Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, The Internet Archive, David Wood's annotated version of the 16mm landing film, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 343 posted by Thursday, July 16th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.